Today, um, we are wrapping up this series, And Then What Happened, where we started this, if you remember, we came out of Easter and we kind of picked up um, with a handful of half-believing disciples that first Easter morning. And we've kind of tried to track from that morning forward how, and, and again, I know I said it every week, how in just a couple of hundred years, 300 or so, Christianity goes from a handful of half-believing disciples to 30 million believers that literally overtook the world's greatest empire. And, and interestingly enough, and, and historians, secular, uh, secular and biblical alike, would, would say that this is true. They literally changed the moral and ethical imperatives of the entire world. The way everybody thought changed. Super interesting. I mean, what was, we've been asking the question, what was their message? What was the good news that they had to share? Why was it so compelling that literally millions and eventually today billions of people wind up identifying as followers of a relatively obscure carpenter turned rabbi turned martyr in just like some far off corner of the Roman Empire? How does that happen? And if the church today, if, if our church, just our church here in Menon, if we understood that message that they understood and we conveyed it well, if we understood the good news, if we shared good news, could all of that happen again to our friends and, and with our families and in our town? Fourth of July weekend, right? We celebrate our, our birth as a nation. We celebrate freedom. As Americans, we love freedom. We fight for freedom. Many have died for it. I heard a joke this week that kind of summed up the church in America and our relationship with freedom a little bit. Somebody postulated, I find it ironic that the colors red, white, and blue stand for freedom until they're flashing behind you. <laughs> it's true, right? We love freedom, but we also need the law, and, and sometimes in America, and you see this a lot, incrementally so, sometimes in America, we love the law even more than we love freedom. And I get that, right? I don't, I don't want to drive home this afternoon and have a 14-year-old drunk driver plaster into my car, right? So I'm glad that, that we have laws right, to protect you and I, me, from that. And so in America, we, and you see this playing out a lot right now in this country, we have this tension that exists. There's like a dynamic relationship, you know this, between freedom and the law. There's a tension. And this relationship between the law and freedom, it's actually at, at the heart of what became the biggest church argument, fight, in the history of the Christian church. And the outcome of the argument and the fight is almost directly, if not primarily, responsible for why you're sitting here in this room today. And it was at the heart of why the gospel became good news in the first century. It's the reason the church exploded like crazy all over the world. And it all had to do with the same argument, that tension between freedom and, and law. And so, look, there's, there's no way for me to back up and kind of bring you up to date where we've been in the journey so far, what we've discovered. If that interests you, I, I, if you're interested in the roots of Christianity and how this did go from a handful of people to what it is today, I, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of the talks. But I just want to point out two huge things that we've learned so far along the way. 
Remember now, Jesus, after his resurrection, right, Luke's research, or Luke researches and then records that for about a month and a half, Jesus, post-resurrection, is back on earth. And, and he is, according to the scriptures, providing over and over many convincing proofs that he is who he said he is, that he's not a ghost, that he's very much alive, and that he's the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life, that he was buried, that he, he, he was dead, and that he rose again. And so now, um, he says to those disciples in the city of Jerusalem, he commissions them to go to the rest of the world and be a witness to those things. Jesus was dead, we saw him killed, he's alive, and we're his witnesses that he is who he said he is. And filled with the Holy Spirit, they go, well, for a long time, nowhere. They stay right in Jerusalem. Because, and nobody could blame them for this, because they believed Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He was the Savior of the people of the nation of Israel. They understood that he was the fulfillment of all the prophetic scriptures of their people, and he was their Savior. And so they stayed in Jerusalem, and they proclaimed the good news to the other Jews in the city. Their Savior had come. But as we've seen, and if you've journeyed with us, you saw how it happened, the same guys that crucified Jesus... They didn't like this new message of Jesus. And so they began to persecute and even murder those who were followers of his in the city. And because of the persecution, the church winds up spreading. Peter and John, right? All of the apostles start leaving the city. And they become witnesses of Jesus in all the places he told them that they should have gone in the first place. And along the way... Along the way, they start to piece it together that Jesus' message and what he was doing was very, very different than what they had understood. That Jesus is not merely the Savior of the Jews, but he's, that, he's the Savior of the whole world. And that, that Jesus came not just to save the world from, from the world's brokenness or fallenness, uh, not to save the world from the brokenness of the Jewish nation, or, or to save the Jewish nation from their occupiers of uh, the Romans, but to save the entire world from the brokenness and fallenness within each of us, the sin that separates all of us from God. Now, some of you might remember a couple of weeks ago, Peter, right? The apostle Peter, he's in this city of Joppa, and he's up on a rooftop, and he's, he's praying, and he has this strange dream, if you remember. And God says to him over and over, as he sees this, the, these visions, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then through, through, through some miraculous provisions of God, he winds up shortly thereafter in the home of a Gentile, a place where he would have called everybody there unclean, a place where a good Jew like Peter could never go, would never go, because there were Jewish laws in the Mosaic Covenant preventing and prohibiting it. He would become unclean. But when he's in that house violating the laws, all of a sudden, he sees the same Holy Spirit that fell on all of the apostles and disciples in Jerusalem. He sees it fall on this room full of Gentiles, people that he would have assumed God wasn't for, people he would have assumed that God didn't want to associate with, people that people like Peter and, and his friends had not allowed access to God because of what they perceived to be their birthright and the Gentiles' behavior. 
and he sees the whole, the same Holy Spirit fall on them, and, and they begin to do the exact same things as he had seen happen with the disciples in Jerusalem. And he makes a gigantic discovery. Again, for thousands of years, the Jewish nation has believed a Savior was coming to save the Jewish nation. And in this home of this Gentile, this Gentile believer, as the Holy Spirit falls on this room full of people that they would have referred to earlier in the day as dogs, Peter says this, he goes, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what's right. That was one huge discovery so far. Whoa, this message is not just a Jewish message. And then you might remember, you, you got the stories, we talked about them last time, of Paul and Barnabas. Paul, he, he, his Jewish name was Saul, he was a Pharisee and he was a persecutor of the church. But he meets the resurrected Jesus on this road to Damascus and he goes from being persecutor to the church's greatest evangelist. He becomes this amazing witness. And, and last week we saw on, uh, what was going on. It, it, Peter, he's off with Cornelius. Paul, he takes an, a, a new believer with him, Barnabas, and they go to the Gentile city of Antioch. It's a city about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And there in Antioch, here's the message Paul starts to give him. We talked about it last week. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through him Everyone who believes is set free from every sin. And then he doubles down on his message. He goes, a justification you weren't able to obtain under the law of Moses. Everyone, every sin, everyone, every sin, by faith, by belief that Jesus was who he said he was and that he died in our place for our sins and that God has resurrected him from the dead. And because he was dead and we've seen him alive, we should probably listen to what he says. And he, he would go into the synagogue in Antioch, right? And he would say that this justification he was speaking of regarding the Mosaic laws, it's a theological term. It just means that we stand through faith as if we had never sinned. He says to all the Jews in the city of Antioch, and by the way, guys, this is a justification. This is a position before God that the law of Moses never provided for us. This Mosaic covenant, the one that the Israelites had been living under for 4,000 years, okay? Today we're celebrating America's 200 and something birthday. Thousands of years. He goes, yeah, it wasn't good enough. All of the laws, all the rituals, all the sacrifices weren't good enough. They didn't do what this Jesus has now done. And so Paul and Barnabas, they're up there in Antioch, and they're proclaiming to both the Jews and the Gentiles this new way to God, not through the Mosaic Covenant, that it comes through faith in Jesus, and it's not by observations of any of the Jewish norms, cultures, laws, prohibitions, ceremonies, sacrifices, none of it. In fact, Paul would write this over and over. There is, he would proclaim, freedom from the old law. Freedom and the law. Freedom from that law. He's telling people in Antioch, you are not bound by all of the things that the Jews were bound by. All of the things that you think you need to do, that the Jews had to do, you no longer need to do. Your relationship with God is no longer, is no longer under, in fact, never was under that covenant. 
You're not made right by God with it, by it, through it. Only by faith in Christ, that he's died for your sins and that he's alive again. And this is good news, man. The people in Antioch in this Gentile city are responding like crazy. And why? I mean, because it, it makes so much sense. It was such good news. I, I mean, these same Jews that they're now in the temple with only weeks before wouldn't even talk to them. And their God seemed to make a lot more sense than the gods, the pantheon of gods that they believed in the city about, right? Those pantheons of gods that existed in Antioch, all they ever seemed to want were more sacrifices. They never seemed to come through. Suddenly they're hearing about a God that loves them so much that he sent his son to come and live and die amongst them and for them. And that now through faith they were reconciled to God, made right, had eternal life, now and forever. That was like, they couldn't believe it. It was incredible news. And thousands are coming to Christ. It was really good news in the city of Antioch. I mean, the church was really doing well until... Until, here's what Luke says, certain people, doesn't name them, I kind of like that, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, Paul had, 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 they had you know, these folks had been baptized, they were new believers in Jesus, certain people came down and said, oh, by the way, unless you're circumcised, forget what Paul said, unless you're circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Welcome back to the tension between freedom and law. Freedom and law. Paul's going, you're free, don't. You don't need anything else other than faith in Christ. And these guys show up and go, oh, no, 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 no. Because apparently down in Jerusalem, the church and the leaders down there had caught wind of the whole thing that was going on with new believers in Antioch, thinking that they're made right with God by faith and not the law of Moses. And so they go up to Antioch to try to clean up the mess Paul and Barnabas are making. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's not that easy. Remember that. We say that a lot as believers, right? It's not that easy. You can't just believe. You've got to also do this. The message was very different. Yes, you need to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. But that doesn't mean the Mosaic Covenant and the Ten Commandments and the 603 others. It doesn't mean that they're ineffective. Quite the opposite. What they would argue is that now we have Jesus and we have the law. And if you want to become a follower of Jesus, then of course you have to become Jewish like Jesus. So, I mean, that means if you're Jewish like Jesus, you will obey all of those laws or try your best. And that's why we have Jesus. If we didn't obey the law, then we have Jesus to kind of clean up where we, where we messed up, right? That's what they would argue. And they would say, yeah, and Jesus was Jewish, so obviously you're going to celebrate all of the ceremonial stuff he did. You know, we said the priest is still in the temple, Right? You need to embrace all of those things. And if you were a man, well, then you needed to become circumcised. Because that was the sign of the covenant. Right? That was, that was the sign that you were a good Jew. Jesus was circumcised. You should be circumcised too. It was Jesus and or Jesus plus that made you right with God. Here's the thing. For most of us, I would argue, this is the religious system that, that we've embraced. We have freedom in Christ, but we love the law. So when you ask the average American, I, you know why I know this? Because everybody that comes to ask me anything about spirituality always comes to ask me, what does the Bible say about? 
right? They want to know what the law says. Can I, should I, am I allowed to? What does the law say? I know we have Jesus, but tell me about the law. Jesus plus. And so here's what Luke says happened. These guys come up and they start going, yeah, yeah, Jesus plus the law, plus uh, circumcision. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. Sharp dispute and, dis and debate. This is a big deal. This is not just a church fight. It's the ultimate church fight. What is even our message? And so Paul and Barnabas, they have to go back to Jerusalem to figure it out. What's the gospel? What are we supposed to be telling people? And why do they have to go all the way back 300 miles to figure it out? Well, because it hasn't been figured out yet. Down in Jerusalem, they're saying one thing. In Antioch, they're saying another thing. And there is no scripture to appeal to. Paul hasn't written his letters yet. The Gospels likely haven't been written yet. This is only about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. And even if they had been, they haven't been spread around widely. So there is no, like, sacred text to appeal to. And so Paul and Barnabas, they go to Jerusalem, and when they get there, they're welcomed by all of the apostles into town. These are the guys, Paul and Barnabas weren't, these are the guys in town that had walked with Jesus. They knew him. And so Paul and Barnabas begin to tell the big guys, right, all of the things that had happened in Antioch and how the church was exploding amongst the Gentiles. And everybody's listening to the stories. And it's right at that moment, Luke says, some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, now that's right, in Jerusalem, some of the Pharisees, like Paul, had realized that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. And so suddenly they too became believers. But they became Jesus and believers. We have Jesus and we have the law. We have Jesus and we have, we have circumcision. And so some of the members, of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they stood up and they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, who could blame them, right? That's what their Bible taught them. This is what millennia's worth of history said. This is what made and kept their nation. This is how God up to this point had interacted with the world. And so, yes, they'd come to believe in Jesus, that he was alive, but you can't get rid of the Mosaic Covenant. You can't do it. That's God's promise to God's people, they would argue. Now, go back to the Gentiles and tell them this is the way it works. They have to obey it. And this public debate, this was held publicly, right? It wasn't like tucked away in a back room. Everybody could listen in. And so this public debate, it goes on for a while. And then finally, Peter stands up. Okay, Peter, this is the original Peter. This is walk on water, Peter, right? This is I'll never deny you, but I will three times, Peter. This is Peter who Jesus said, you're the rock on which I'm going to build the church. Peter listens to all of this, and then finally he stands up. What's he going to say? After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. And so here's Peter the rock. He's going to say something, and it's going to be a big deal, right? This is Peter weighing in on this argument. I mean, Peter's like the first among equals in the room. But before he weighs in on the debate, I have to let you know there is a back story to Peter at this moment. Because Peter has already been struggling with this very same issue. And he's about to reveal how he settled it within himself. At no small cost, this debate within himself, it was not easy for Peter. 
Because what was happening in Antioch, it was also happening in other places. It wasn't just Antioch where Paul would go in, proclaim the good news of forgiveness of sins through Jesus, that everybody's invited, every sin is covered, come by faith, come on in. And Paul would go and he would start these little ecclesias, these Jesus gatherings all over the known world, and then what would happen is, People from Jerusalem, people of a certain sect of Christianity called Judaizers, they would come in right behind them and go, yeah, 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 you know, he gets a little exorbitant, he gets a little crazy sometimes. You know, Paul, he probably didn't explain all the details. You still need to get circumcised. You still need to follow all the rules, right? Well, it actually had happened in a place called Galatia. That was another place where, where Paul had taught the same thing, and some of the Jews, Judaizers had come into town. And they said, you've got to get circumcised. You've got to become Jewish. And so the people of Galatia, and we would do this too, right? The people of Galatia go, we do? All right. So I guess it's Jesus and. And, and so the people in Galatia actually start trying to get right with God by being good. They, they try to start getting right with God by getting circumcised. And so Paul writes them a letter, and he doesn't go, way to go. In fact, he reveals in the letter that he and Peter have already had a little bit of a discussion about this prior to this meeting in Jerusalem, and it wasn't a good discussion. Here's what he says. Paul writes to the church in Galatia. He says, when Cephas, that was Peter's name in Aramaic, when Peter came to Antioch, okay, that's where he, they had been, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why? For before certain men came from James, okay, what's that mean? James was the leader, Jesus' brother, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, right? So James had sent some people into Antioch. Well, when, when they came, Peter, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And then the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. That's how powerful this was. Short version, Peter came to Antioch and was doing what he did in the house of Cornelius. He was ignoring the Mosaic law. He was embracing his freedom from the law in Christ. And he's eating with the Gentiles. But then some of the guys from the Jerusalem church come and Peter sees them. And he gets intimidated, and he gets scared, and he starts to worry about what they're going to think about him. He starts to worry that they're going to judge him. And what does he do? He pulls back from them so he would look good to all of his religious friends. He wants to look right for the religious people. He didn't care what he looked like in front of the Gentiles. And so Paul says, you know what you are, Peter? You're a hypocrite. Not one to mince words, right? He says, Peter, he goes, I know who you are. I get it. You walked around with Jesus. You headed up the church. But Peter, I'll tell you something else you are. You're a hypocrite. You say you believe one thing, but you do another, and your hypocrisy is dangerous. Even my buddy Barnabas got led astray by your hypocrisy. Of course, of course he did, because you, Peter, and you're a church leader, and you are a hypocrite. He goes on, he goes, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that, quote, 
a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. So we too, we too, he says, this is not a Gentile or a Jew thing. He lumps them right in with the Gentiles. We Jews too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that, in other words, Jesus isn't just theirs. They too have to come by the same way the Gentiles do. We've put our faith in Christ Jesus too so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one is justified. No one. And he addresses Peter's issue, which was that, he goes, if Peter, Peter's got the same issue many of us have had and the church have had over the years too. Well, if I go and associate with the sinners, right, won't it mean I approve of their behavior? If I go and love on the sinners, won't it mean that I condone what it is they believe? Which is really a strange question if you think about it. Who did Jesus spend all of his time with? Sinners. Was he known to be a friend of what? Sinners. But, it, but here's, here's, here's what he wrote. But, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we find ourselves also among sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Now, I want you to see that you see the next two words. What are they followed by? An exclamation point. Absolutely not. Stop it. Stop it. And talking about the law, he goes, look, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I'm really a lawbreaker. Paul goes, look, we have, the old covenant has been raised. It's gone. It's of no value. Stop appealing to it. It's doing no good for anyone here. But if I rebuild that, if Peter, by you trying to not eat with the Gentiles now and trying to bring the law back into this, if I rebuild that, that's the issue of being a lawbreaker. And he sums it up so strongly for Peter. How about this one? Now remember, Peter, if you recall, he really struggled after he denied Jesus three times. Jesus goes through this brutal crucifixion. Peter's aware of it. Peter hides. It, 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 he, he, I'm not sure he ever got over the guilt. I know the stories of Peter and Jesus on the shore. I know Jesus forgave him. I know Jesus restored him. But I also know that he, he's a human being. And so he's probably still got some, some guilt in there. And, and, and so here's, here's what Paul says to him. He goes, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Peter, Christ died for nothing. He says that to Peter. Christ, listen, dude, if you do that, you keep doing that? Christ died for nothing if you keep doing that, Peter. Don't embrace the old again, Peter. If you do, if you start telling people they need to obey the law of Moses, they need to get circumcised, then Peter, Christ died for nothing. And if there's anybody here that knows that Christ died for something, Peter, it's you. Stop being a hypocrite. And then he would go on to tell the whole church in Galatia the same thing. He said to the whole church, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And don't let yourselves be burned again by the yoke of slavery. Don't become a slave to all of the laws. And how about this one? Mark my words. Write it down, he says. I'm telling you. I'm te Actually, that's what he said. I'm telling you. That if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Anybody circumcised in here? That's not obviously what he means. 
right? What he means is if, you're, if you think that obeying the laws is helping you, if you think that it's Jesus and I have to do a few things to be made good with God, then you need to understand Jesus is of no, is of no use to you at all. You've invalidated him. He has no value. And here is why. He goes, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. There is not like a little of the law and I've got Jesus to cover up what I can't fulfill. There is Jesus or the law. Anybody who lets himself get circumcised, he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law, you've been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. You've tried to mix in a little bit of works in with God's grace, and they don't mix. I believe in Jesus, and I'm a really good person. I believe in Jesus, and I go on missions trips. I believe in Jesus, and I go to church a lot. I believe in Jesus, and I give 10% to the church. I believe in Jesus for them, and I got circumcised. You know, it's like I'm going to take the belt and suspenders approach to this. I believe in grace, but I'm also going to be a good person because that way maybe, you know, I don't know, grace must have its limits, they're thinking. So here's what Paul says in them. It's what he says to people like you and I that, that do this all the time. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor, or, nor uncircumcision has any value. And this is such a bold statement. I mean, if this is Paul, a Pharisee. It is no value. He's saying, look, the entire sign of our people, the covenant that God made with us, what made our people our people, it's really worthless now. It's over. It has no meaning I mean, Paul, they've got to be thinking, Paul, right? Paul, you want us to get rid of all of it? You want us to get rid of the Mosaic law? I mean, Paul, what if we get rid of circumcision? Paul, if we get rid of the law and we get rid of circumcision, what's left? There's no law and there's no circumcision. Why are we any different than anybody else? What separates us just from every other, like, pagan person on the street? Paul answers that question. He goes, the only thing that counts... Does anybody know what comes next? Because we should, right? I mean, this is our message. This is what we're supposed to be proclaiming to people on the street. He says, look, there is something that counts, but it's not being good. It's not. And it's not ceremonies, going to church. None of that counts. None of that counts. The only thing that counts is Faith expressing itself through love. That's it. It's the only thing God's interested in. Faith expressing itself through love. It's not just believing in Jesus, but it's expressing that belief through love. Working itself out is what that word, word, word means in the Greek. Working itself out through love. That's it. Paul goes, you're justified by faith. You're good with God. God has settled. Man. There's nothing you could do. To settle matters between you and God. There's nothing you can do. It's worthless. Stop wasting your time. Sleep well tonight because you're good with God through faith. Let it go. You're forgiven. You don't have to worry. You're good with God. But now that you're good with God, go be good with others. Express that faith through love to others. He goes on. He goes, says to the Galatians, I don't understand. Like when I was there, everything was going well. We, you understood this. You were running a good race. And he used a little wordplay here on the circumcision thing. Who cut, see that there? Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? 
That kind of persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you. By the way, it's, uh, people, people, law always sounds good, doesn't it? It always sounds good. Oh, if you do this, you know, it always sounds good. And he says, he reveals why this is so upsetting to him. Here's what he said. He goes, look, just a little bit of yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough. And he knows this because he saw it happen to Peter in Antioch. He says, look, if you just mix in a little bit of law, just a little of the old covenant in with the new covenant, if you just put a pinch of being good, just a, a, a pinch of sacrifice, it just you, you add a little bit of circumcision and, and a portion, it's a tiny bit of being a good person. And, and Jesus, I did this. Jesus, did you see what I've done? Or did you see what I gave? He goes, look, you just add a tiny bit of that. That will work its way into the entire movement of Christ, and it will make the cross and grace completely ineffective. He knew it. He saw it with Peter. He saw what happened to Peter. It made Peter a hypocrite. Think about what that does. You just mix a little bit of legal in. You just mix a little bit of being good in. And what begins to happen? Well, people begin to compare themselves with one another. It makes, it makes good and bad relative. It elevates one person and separates them from another. It, revolts, it results in some people being in, other people being out. It results for many of us in guilt and shame. It results in, and for others of us, self-righteousness. What it results in is all of the things that have made religion so ugly and toxic across the centuries. What it results in is why Christianity has such a hard time in the world we're in today. Jesus wouldn't have a hard time in the world we're in today. But the Jesus and model has a very hard time. Because we keep trying to mix some stuff in. Just add a little this, add a little that. And it becomes repulsive. It was repulsive to Paul. In fact, he's so fired up. He's so upset. He actually says something which is really, you know, it's strong. It's strong. He says, as for those agitators, this is what I'm going to tell, tell all of you that come to me after the sermon today and tell me that, you know, well, well, what about this? What about that? As for those agitators, I wish they would just call the, go the whole way and emasculate themselves. That, this is why you should read the Bible, right? These are the things that are in there. That you, like, he's like, look, you want, you want to cut some? Just cut it all off. Cut the whole thing off. That's how serious this is. It's not a joke. This is very dangerous. It's very dangerous when you mix law and grace together. Well, that's the backstory of Peter, okay? That's, that he's already had this argument. He's been in Antioch. He realizes how it made him become a hypocrite trying to mix these things up. And so now Peter stands up. What's he going to say, right? In fact, at some level, I'm thinking he's got to figure maybe he owes Paul and Barnabas. I mean, Paul called him out in front of people. I called him a hypocrite to his face. But now he's on his home ground. Now Peter's back in Jerusalem, right? Now he's with all of the Judaizers and the Pharisees. And so now he's going, mm, I'm not in Antioch anymore, Paul. And so now all of the legalists are kind of looking at Peter, and Peter stands up. What's he going to say? Well, here's, here's, here's what Luke writes. He says, Peter got up and he said, Brothers, you know, some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them, he's talking about the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. 
He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. He's going back to what he had already told them happened with Cornelius. And if you remember, they, they were not happy with him when he went to Cornelius' house. But he goes, guys, you remember what happened, right? Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? And then notice the exclamation point. No! 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 Don't do it. Don't mix it. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. That's the way it felt in the room. Shock. What? It took Peter 20 years to figure it out. But the message of the cross finally caught up with Peter. In fact, look what he says. He goes, we're saved the way they are. They don't, need to become, they don't need to become more like us. We need, in a sense, to become more like them. Oh, my gosh. He's telling the Jews that they need to be, become more like the Gentiles and let go of all of their stuff and, and just embrace grace. We need to move towards them. We're saved like they are. Luke says then the whole place got quiet. Nobody knows what to say. And I think part of it is because something just died. Thousands of years of a covenant. All the things that had kept people from God. And in that silence, then James stands up, okay? Now remember, James played a part in the backstory too. Remember, James was the guy who was leading the church in Jerusalem. He was the guy that sent people into Antioch that Peter got so intimidated by. So now James, here's the brother of Jesus. James is in charge of the church in Jerusalem. Now James is going to stand up. What's James going to say? Is James going to correct Peter and go, I can't believe I have to correct you again. You're supposed to be like the head of the church. So James, James stands up, and everybody wants to hear what James is going to say. Maybe he's going to correct this whole thing because they want their law back. And he reminds them, he says, brothers and sisters. He says, brothers. I'll say brothers and sisters. I love this. He goes, I want you to listen to me. And he reminds them of an Old Testament prophecy which agreed with what Peter and Paul and Barnabas had, had shared. And then he says this. He goes, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It is my judgment, and James' judgment mattered, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. If you are in the room this morning and you are not Jewish, I want you to know you are likely here because of that judgment. That's why you're here. Because James, the brother of Jesus, stood up and said, at a great personal cost to him, his family, his rule, his country, his nation, he stood up and said, it's my judgment that we're not going to make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. James, the brother of Jesus, tore down all of the things that could have kept you from Christ, all of them. The church hasn't been as strong. Over the centuries, we have put lots and lots and lots of things back up. We've made it oftentimes way more difficult for people who are far from Christ to turn to God. Why? Because we keep telling them that there's Jesus plus. 
We've told them all the things that they need to do and all the things they need to stop doing, all the things they need to stand for, all the things they need to stand against, all the people they need to love, all the people they need to hate, all the candidates they need to embrace, all the policies they need to protest. We've told them what they need to give, where they need to go, how they have to vote, what they need to wear. Don't you understand that the church has loved the law that Jesus came to set us free from? Now, I know for a handful of you in the room this morning, this message is very freeing, right? It's, and so many, so many of these things that the church has put up over the years as Jesus plus things, they've kept you from church or from God. And so hearing this message is so good. It's so freeing. It's good news. God loves you. He loves you. And you don't have to perform from him. There's nothing you can do to impress him. He just loves you. He gave his life for you. Maybe you can even feel that love and that grace and that forgiveness overwhelming you. And you can understand how this message could change the world. For most of us in the room, can we be honest, most of us that have been around the church our whole lives, for most of us this message is very threatening. We don't like this message. Because we find ourselves much more comfortable with the law than we do with freedom. I mean, isn't that true? When you became a Christian, weren't you told all the things that you were supposed to do now that you're a Christian? All the things you couldn't do any longer? I, I was meeting with somebody the other day. They wanted to get baptized, and they were telling me, I really want to get baptized, but, but I, I, I struggle with the things that, that, that you know, I, I'm supposed to do and can't do. And like all of the Jesus Plus stuff started coming in. I mean, I, this is a struggle for me, right? I mean, in most of our hearts, mine too, it's like, John, I believe in the whole grace thing, but don't get too crazy, these people are going to go nuts. They're going to go out and just do all kinds of sin. Well, breaking news, they're going to go out and do all kinds of sin anyway. Okay? Don't preach so much grace. Don't preach so much grace. They'll, they'll just think it's easy believism. I mean, if the old covenant and the laws are gone, what do I tell my kids? What do you, how do I tell my kids? What do I tell them to do? Like, where's the right and where's the wrong? Where are the morals and the ethics? What are we going to inscribe on the walls of the courthouse now? Do as thou pleaseth. Right? It's very confusing. Well, here's the, here's the deal. There is one new law and one new ethic in the new covenant. Theologians actually call it the law of Christ. Paul already mentioned it. He said it's the only thing that counts. Faith working its way out through love. That's it. There is one law, and that's it. Love one another as I have loved you. Love your enemies. The meeting in Jerusalem is wrapping up, and they need to write a letter back to the church in Antioch. They're all waiting up there, and guys are like trying to figure out if they're going to have to get surgery or not, right? So everybody's waiting in, with bated breath in Antioch. Well, what's the ruling? What's the ruling? What's the ruling? And so, so James stand up and he says, Here, here's the ruling, here's my judgment, since we're not going to make it difficult for, believer, for, for Gentiles to become believers. He goes, instead of making it difficult, here's what we're going to write to them. We're going to tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Has anybody ever, did your parents give you that one when you came to Christ? Here's the four rules, kids. Three of them were like, yeah! I can comply with those three. That fourth one is not as easy. 
And he explains why. He goes, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, thousands of years. And it's read in the synagogue on every Sabbath, even up there in Antioch. So what is he saying? See, what James is putting into writing is what Paul had said counts. Faith working itself out in love. So because the Jews in Antioch were having such a hard time giving up the dietary restrictions and the dietary laws, it was just so hard for them. They had been Jews for thousands of years. And, and like the, the concept of eating a pork chop, right? Like, they, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. If you're going to do it, I can't, I can't hang out. I mean, it's just so gross. And so he says to these Gentile believers in Antioch, he says, out of your love for the Jewish believers, because the law of Moses has been preached for thousands of years, it's so hard for them to let it go. Out of your love for the Jewish believers, I would like you to limit your freedoms so as not to offend or be a stumbling block to others. Can, I, can the church in America please hear this? Imagine that instead of demanding our freedoms... What if the church was willing to limit their freedoms out of love for another? The church would start to look a little different than it does, wouldn't it? And then to a church in a pagan culture, he addresses morality. I mean, we just do whatever we want. Oh my gosh, if the law isn't binding, human beings are going to... And we always run to the same thing, right? Well, what does that mean about sex? Somehow it's always like the big question. And so, so here's the deal. There was a tremendous difference in Antioch between Jews and Gentiles when it came to sexual ethics. Among the Gentiles, everybody slept with everybody. That's just the way it was. There was temple prostitution was common with the worship of the other gods. Slave owners regularly slept with their slaves. Antioch was known as one of the most immoral cities in the Roman Empire. There was little, if any, stigma att attached to sex outside of marriage, except in the Jewish community. That was the only community that had these high moral standards. So in addition to what they eat, James urges the Gentile Christians to avoid sexual immorality. And his command, actually you'll see, Paul later on, he drops the other meat, the strangled meat, the blood stuff. He, he drops that later on because it, it, it didn't make sense to the other churches. They didn't need to write that to him. But Paul always held on to this sexual morality issue. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. See, God's will for my life and for yours is that we live, live, lead, lead sexually pure lives. That we have complete faithfulness to our spouse if we're married and to celibacy if we're not. And, I, and you need to know that prohibition is just as countercultural today in our culture as it was in Antioch or Rome in the first century. This is what happens with sex, right? I just when our faith works itself into love sexually, what does that mean? When sex moves from a demand, I demand to have my rights to have sex with whoever I want, whenever I want. When it, when it moves from, whoa, 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 wait a minute. It's faith working itself in love towards you. I only have to care about you. Well, now I have to rethink sex because now this just became from me fulfilling a desire I have to worrying about you. I need to care about you. I need to care about the impact that sex, having sex with you will have on you. I need to think about the, the impact that, that having sex with you outside the covenant of the marriage might have. And, and I need to think about the future regrets that you might have over this. I, I need to think about what this is going to mean if, if you and I don't get married and you wind up with somebody else. I'm always going to be in the back of your mind. Maybe I need to think through what this is going to mean for, a, for your spouse later on. You see, the call of love is very radical. 
It's funny, the Galatians ask the same questions. No laws, oh my gosh, no laws. John, don't tell them no laws because they're just going to sin away. Well, here's how, how Paul answered them. Here's what he said to the Galatians. He goes, you, my brothers and sisters, you're called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. And then he says it again. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the new covenant. That's what made the church explode. Does it mean there's no laws? No, it means there's one law, the law of Christ. You love each other as I have loved you. Well, is that, what does that mean? Does that mean like that the Ten Commandments are gone? Well, no. They have some relevance. You're just not going to be saved by them. Here's what it means. It means you don't honor your mother and father because the Ten Commandments say you honor your mother and father. You know why you honor your mother and father? Because you love your mother and father. Do you know why you don't steal? Because somebody else worked hard for that. And why, why would you take it from them? Do you know why you don't commit adultery? Because that's somebody else's spouse. If you love them, you, you would never do that. I mean, you could go on and on. Do you know why you don't gossip? You know, you know why you don't cheat? You know why you don't post things uh, on the internet about, about political candidates? You see what this means? It changes everything. It changes everything. The church suddenly just becomes this place full of love and grace, and it is so different. It looks so different than every other institution on earth. I'm telling you, if we got it right, people would, would, would just run towards it again. If we got the message right, people would run towards it again. And so that's what happened. And what happens next? The truth is, it's ultimately just up to you. Let's stand and close in song.